Be seated, please. Good morning. We're thankful that you, you are here uh, today, that we're gathered here together. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. This is the Lord's day. This is the first day of the week. This is Resurrection Day. And we've come in uh, to this place in the name of our Lord to celebrate the fact that we can have new life and salvation through Jesus. This is the house of the Lord. Uh, not the brick and mortar structure that we're sitting in, though we are very thankful for our facility here and it is a blessing to us. But when we say we're coming into the house of the Lord, what we're talking about is us. Because God has revealed to us as individual believers, baptized believers, that we are temples of the Holy Spirit. And He's also told us that collectively as the church, we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. That God is dwelling in our midst. And so we're gathered together in His name, in His house, to worship Him this morning. And we're thankful that you're here. Uh, In just a moment, I am going to ask you to stand once again. I know you just got back on your seat, and I'm sorry about that. Uh, If it's convenient for you, I I want to ask you to stand, not to greet your neighbor this morning. I'm not going to ask you to do that. And some of you just went, phew, okay, good. I don't have to be friendly to the people around me. I can just stay in my zone. Um, I'm going to ask you to stand because I want us to read again the passage of Scripture that Isaac read for us a few minutes ago that will be the basis for our sermon this morning. And I think it's important every once in a while that we get up on our feet out of respect for God and for His Holy Word that He's revealed to us. So let's bring the slide up. Let's all get on our feet. Let me read this passage from the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Listen well, church. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the church together said, Amen. Have a seat. Thank you. What a stunning passage of Scripture this is. What beautiful language that Paul employs to talk about Christ. So beautiful, in fact, that some people throughout history have hypothesized that this is an early Christian hymn that was in operation in the early church, that was known by the Philippian believers that Paul borrowed and used in his letter. Uh, We know that the early Christians sang, as evidenced by several passages in the New Testament. We know that this practice continued after the New Testament was written. I find it really interesting that in the second century, 
after Christianity had sort of exploded, we have a letter that has been found written by a Roman governor to the Roman Emperor Trajan. And in the letter, he's asking the Roman Emperor, what are we supposed to do about all these Christians? There's so many of them. And they keep popping up. And in that letter, he says something to this effect. They get together, and in their worship services, they sing to Christ as if He's a God. That's what, that's what this, uh, this letter says. Very fascinating. And we can see how this passage could be one such hymn. A, a passage that praises Christ, that talks about the nature of Christ. But we can't know that for sure, and it's just as likely that Paul wrote this himself. We know Paul was capable of writing such lofty, elevated words such as these. We have many of his writings in the New Testament. But no matter who wrote this, whether Paul wrote it or whether it came from somebody earlier and Paul employs it, it is stunningly beautiful. It is a work of art, these words that we have before us this morning. But in addition to this elevated poetic language that that we can look at and admire, especially if we're into literature, if we're English people, if we like poetry. But beyond that, beyond all that, and maybe if you don't like that, you're, you're not into that. Let me tell you something else about this passage. It is a vitally important passage for our understanding of Jesus Christ. This passage, in addition to its beauty, reveals to us the very nature and the character of Jesus Christ. This is some heavy stuff here. This is some rich stuff that we're going to look at together. Are you ready for this, church? Important stuff that is vital to our belief system as Christians. This passage tells us, God communicating through Paul tells us, that Jesus was in the form of God. This speaks to the pre-existence of Jesus. When He was born, that's not the first time that He existed. The Son of God has an eternal nature. He was in the form of God before He was born into this world in the flesh. He was in the form of God before the foundations of this world were even laid. He pre-existed with God because what? He is God. As John tells us in his Gospel, chapter 1, verse 1. He's in the same form of God. He is God. And He pre-existed with God long before He came to the earth. But then Paul tells us something really interesting. This status that he held, this nature of being in the form of God, it was not something that he believed he needed to hold on to, that was, that, that was something to be grasped, as Paul tells us. And so, he emptied himself. He made himself nothing. This speaks of, here's a big word, the incarnation. God becoming flesh. God becoming like us, His human creation. Jesus chose to become to release His grip on the status of divinity. Not that He was not God when He was on this earth, but He gave up the rights and privileges of being God in heaven so that He could be born into an ordinary Jewish family in a stable where animals slept. And be laid there in a manger. He, as Paul says, took the form of a servant. But his humility didn't end there. Yes, he humbled himself by leaving heaven, 
coming to earth, but Paul also says he was obedient to the point of death. He was willing to die like we, us humans, have to die. As long as Jesus delays His coming, we all face death. The death rate of the people gathered in this room is 100%. Unless Jesus returns uh, ahead of the end of our lives, we, we all will die. And Jesus submitted Himself to death. To the end of human existence on this earth. And Paul says, even death on a cross. Crucifixion wasn't just a convenient way for the Roman government to kill people. Crucifixion was to make a statement to all people who dared to rebel against the empire. It was the way in which they killed somebody to to utterly destroy that person. Not only physically, but the degradation and the humiliation involved in crucifixion. And Jesus submitted Himself not just to death, but to that death. To that type of death. That cruel, agonizing, humiliating death on a cross. And Paul says, as a result of that, therefore, his language, God has now exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. Because Jesus was willing to submit himself to the Father's will and be obedient to the point of death, God has now glorified him. And we hear Jesus speaking similar language before he leaves the earth in Matthew chapter 28. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. God has exalted Jesus. And now he is seated at the right hand of God, we read about in the New Testament. Do you see the movement in this passage? Jesus begins with God. He humbles himself by coming to earth and even further by being willing to die and being willing to die on the cross for our sins. And as a result of that sacrifice he makes, God exalts him to the highest place in the heavens. Down into humiliation, Jesus goes. And up to glorification. Marvelous theology that Paul shares with us here about the identity and the nature of Jesus Christ. This is stuff that we ought to know because it forms the bedrock of our faith in Christ Jesus. But there's even more to the passage than all this. Now, now that would be great if we could end right there. It would be enough. But I want you to look at how Paul is using this section. You shouldn't miss this. Because Paul, Paul has an agenda here. And he has a purpose for talking about Christ in this magnificent way. Go back to verse 5, where he begins it all. Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves. I'm about to share with you the mind and the attitude and the heart of Jesus. And you ought to have the same mind and attitude and heart within you. Paul is saying here, I'm not just describing Jesus. Now he is describing Jesus, and we learn a whole lot from his description of Jesus, but that's not all he's doing. He's also describing how you and me and all those who wear the name of Christ should be like Jesus. He, in this passage, is employing Jesus as the ultimate example for the life of humility to which these Christians have been called, to which we all have been called. Remember last week when we looked at chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, when Paul tells the Philippian Christians, 
Don't do anything out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourself. And he says, look not only to your own interest, look to the interest of others. And by way of example, let me present before you Jesus Christ. This is what Paul is saying. If you want to know what that looks like in, in life, living a humble life, looking to others' interests, treating others as more significant than you, then look no further than the example of Jesus Christ. Have this mind, which was in Him, in you. So, with that in mind, look again at, at verses 6 and 7 up here on the screen or in your copy of the Word of God. Let's take a closer look at Jesus here. In verses 6 and 7, He was in the form of God. A quality with God He experienced in heaven, but He did not see this status as something that should lead Him to holding on to the privileges involved. He had every right to. Jesus had every right to stay in heaven and to continue enjoying that experience with God the Father. He didn't have to come down. He chose to come down. It was His choice. It was the Father's will for Jesus to loosen His grasp on everything that He enjoyed about heaven. He viewed all of those rights and privileges not as something to be kept for His own advantage, for His own benefit. But He was willing to let go of that for our benefit. Because He's looking out for our interests. He's concerned about us and not about Himself. He gave up His power for weakness. He limited Himself by allowing Himself to be born into this world as a little baby and to be brought up in a very humble, poor, Jewish environment to experience all of the trials and the difficulties that we experience. He, as Paul says, he emptied himself. He emptied himself. Paul has an interesting way of saying this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. He says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the favor, though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. Jesus was rich. The richest of rich experienced all the wealth of heaven, and yet He became poor. He emptied Himself for our sake. Paul goes to this whole section as a way of saying to these believers and to us, be like that. Follow His example. But when we read these verses, and when we see what Jesus was willing to do, and how Jesus was willing to humble Himself, and empty Himself, and loosen His grasp on all those privileges so that He could serve us, we, well, we think to ourselves, this is a tall order. This is a really difficult thing to do. This is a hard task. Remember all that downward movement of Jesus from heaven to life on earth to death to death on a cross? That's not what our society is all about, moving downward. Our society is focused on Upward movement, moving on up. The Jeffersons, 
this theme song, we're moving on up. I won't sing it for you. I'll just quote it. We're moving on up to the east side, to a deluxe apartment in the sky. We finally got a piece of the pie. All right, the Jeffersons is a little bit before my time. I'm just going to brag on my youth. But I did see a few reruns, and that's the theme song. It's this theme song about we're moving up. We're moving up in the world. And we could think about our culture and all of the ways that this is expressed. We talk about upward mobility. You hear politicians talking about this. Creating opportunities for people to move up, for their incomes to grow, for their their ability to get um, jobs and employment. We talk about how somebody has moved on to bigger and better things. And that's always a positive. They've moved on to bigger and better things. We always knew that they would. And now they have and we're so proud of them. And we talk about the ladder of success. And our goal is to climb the ladder of success. We don't want to get hung up on just one rung. We don't stop. We, there's always one more. We want to go up a little higher. We want to get a little bit richer. We want to have a little bit nicer things. We want to have a better paying job. We want to keep on climbing up. But this passage, well, it shows us a Jesus who was willing to climb down the ladder. A Jesus who was not concerned with moving up and with holding on to his status, but letting go and coming down. And Paul says, emulate that. Be like. Him. When we are given power and status uh, or position, uh, that's something that we hold on very tightly. We're proud of it. We don't want to let it go. And even more than that, we try to expand it, but not Jesus. He leveraged his position to benefit other people. He wasn't interested in holding on to it so that he could selfishly push his own agenda He let go of it so that he could serve us. And Paul says we need to do likewise. You know, we all have power or status or position. You may think, no, I don't. I am the low man on the totem pole. I'm at the the bottom of the heap. But you do. You, You are over somebody. Somebody is under you, no matter who you are. And it may not be in an official position of power or authority or leadership, But influentially, you are over somebody. Even our young people. If you're a 10-year-old kid in this audience, there's an 8-year-old kid who looks up to you. If you're a 15-year-old young person, there's a 13-year-old who admires you. If you're an 18-year-old senior, there is a sophomore who wants to walk in your footsteps. We all have people who are looking to us, who are under us, Whether you're a parent, it's your children. If you're a teacher, it's your student. If you're an employer, it's your employees. If you're a boss or a leader, everybody has somebody under you. And the question is, will you use your position to fight for recognition or to serve others? Will you be like Jesus or won't you? Is the bottom line here. Will you seek to advance your own interests, your own agenda, Or will you empty yourself for the interests of others? This is a a simple concept, isn't it? I mean, it's not hard to talk about. It's not hard for me to stand up and say it in several different ways. But it's so difficult. And it's something that we have to learn throughout our lives. I remember when I was a freshman in high school, I was 
fresh off my first mission trip and my mom was talking about how she wanted to share her faith with uh, the principal at our high school. And I had all these helpful tips for her. Because, you know, I was a pro in evangelism because I'd just been on my first mission trip as a ninth grader. I knew all about it. So I said to her, well, this is what you should do. This is how you should approach it. This is what you ought to say. And she said, you know what? You've got a lot to learn. And she was right. And, um, you know, that's not a bad mantra for my life. I need to constantly remember that I have a lot to learn and that this journey is not going to be finished and that I need to continue to, to grow and develop and mature as a believer in Christ. That is a really simple lesson. You've got a lot to learn. I mean, it's easy to say. We know what it means. But how difficult is it to maintain a humble posture throughout life, to be coachable by God and by other believers? This is kind of like that. Lower yourself for the benefit of others. Stop with the climbing of the ladder of success and come down to serve. Easy to say, hard to do. But let me share something that might help. You know, there's a reward There is a reward involved here. We not only have the chance to follow Christ in His humiliation. Paul says, follow His example in this way. But what he implies here is that if we do that, we will follow His example in His exaltation, in His glorification. Paul talks about this in several places in his letters. Philippians chapter 4, verse 21. At the end day, the last day, the day of judgment, For believers, this is a promise. God will transform your lowly body to be like His glorious body. Jesus' glorious body. You will be raised. You'll be transformed. You will resemble the glorious body of Jesus Christ. You'll be exalted as Jesus was exalted. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 2. God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly places. There is a sense in which this is already true. Paul says this in the present tense. And that's a mystery to dig into. But the fullness of that will be true in the life to come. After Jesus returns, when He raises us up to dwell with God and Jesus forever in heavenly places. So we have that to look forward to. It's a glorious inheritance that we will receive from God. And yet, we must remember, this is a path that we've been called to follow. And the path, the road to glorification, to exaltation, it always, always travels through humiliation. There are no shortcuts. There are no detours. This is the journey to which you've been called as a follower of Jesus Christ. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, you'll be glorified with Him. That's pretty clear. That's as plain as day. You will be glorified with Him. But I left out the first part. Let me read the verse in its entirety. If we suffer with Him, we'll be glorified with Him. If we're willing to do as He did, and loosen our grasp on our status, on our privilege, on our position, on our power, and come down and serve and empty ourselves and make ourselves nothing for the sake of people underneath us, That is the way to glorification, to exaltation. That is the only way. If we're serious about following the Savior, then we must follow Him down 
before we follow him up. Now there's a passage, a couple verses at the end of our text. And they point us ahead to a time when every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is a day we ought to be excited about, looking forward to. Everybody who's ever mocked Jesus, everybody who's ever persecuted somebody, persecuted somebody because they're a Christian, everybody, any, everybody who's ever killed somebody because they're a Christian, those knees will bow before Christ, those tongues will confess that Jesus is Lord. The truth of that will be revealed to all. And by faith, we believe it now, or we ought to. But let me tell you something that's really sad about these verses. There will come a day when everybody will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord and every knee will bow before Him. But not all of those people will be saved by their acknowledgement. And the reason is they spent a lifetime denying that and resisting that truth. And so the message for each of us is Now is the time to bow. Now is the time to confess. Acknowledge it now so you can be saved by it then. Everybody will acknowledge it then, but not everybody will be saved from that acknowledgement. I want to get ahead on that. I want to do it now rather than wait. What about you? Are you ready to bow before Jesus today? Are you ready to confess that Jesus is Lord? He is. And there's coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess, but you can do it now. By faith, you can say, I believe Jesus is Lord. And I'm ready to bow before Him. And there's nothing wrong with literally bowing, with going to your knees out of awe and respect for Jesus. But there's more to it than that. Bowing before Jesus means you're submitting your life to Him. Bowing before Jesus means you're handing over everything that you are to His Lordship. Bowing before Jesus means you're willing to follow His example of humility so that someday you can be glorified as He is now glorified. Maybe you're ready to do that today. Maybe you're a baptized believer, but you don't really feel like your life is bowed before Jesus. You're not handing over everything to Him. You're not submitting your will to His will. And so maybe this morning you need to come and you need to ask for prayers for that. We all get distracted. We all get off track. We all need to realign, recalibrate our lives and once again bow before the throne of God, before Jesus who is our Lord. If you need to come and do that, I would invite you to. Or see a couple elders who will be in the conference room after our worship service. Or maybe you've never named the name of Christ. Maybe you've never submitted to Him in baptism. And you've decided that's something that you need to do and you want to do and you don't want to leave this building until you do it. You've got a chance right now to come and to say yes to Jesus and to begin a journey of following Him, of humbling yourself, of deciding you are going to be a selfless servant as Jesus was and looking ahead to the day when you will be with Jesus and the Father in heaven forever, glorified.
exalted. That's our future. That's our present. And you're invited to come and to enter this story this morning as we stand and sing.